tonight. It should only take us about an hour and a half. Glad you're laughing. Give it about an hour and 15 minutes. We'll see if you're still laughing. All right, so 1 Corinthians... Pardon me, four verses there. So beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, reading in verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come to this text tonight, uh, we are a people prone to disunity. Uh, We are a people prone uh, who default to um, isolation and individualism. Uh, Father, we confess that we are a people prone to wanting things our way. Um, Thinking at all times that um, our thoughts are the right thoughts. Uh, our ways are the right ways, and that our opinions uh, matter most. Uh, Father, that's the the default position. Um, That's the natural position. It's the position that we're inundated with in every message that we're sent um, throughout our world. And so it is supernatural um, for there to be unity in the midst of diversity. Father, we are all different. Um, Even the the two folks in here that might be most similar are so radically unique and radically different. And yet your uh, redemptive purposes call us together in one body with one head, Jesus Christ. As Paul taught the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 5 and following that there is one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. So as we come to this text tonight, I I just ask that you would um, supernaturally uh, give us um, insight, Lord, and and you teach us in 1 Corinthians 1 and 3 that spiritual things are spiritually taught. And so we submit that um, we need you um, to think your thoughts after you. We need the the mind of Christ. We need you, Holy Spirit, to teach us. So, Lord, I, I simply ask that you would do that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the, the thesis tonight, the, the big idea that we're going to explore in this text is that God-given gifts are for church-building good. God-given gifts are for church-building good. And that's actually going to be our three points tonight. I, I want to first begin with um, God. So God-given, and then second, God-given gifts, emphasis on gifts, and then thirdly, church-building goods. So those are going to be our three points um, tonight that I I hope that we'll be able to see from this text, that God-given gifts are for church-building good. So initially then, our our launching point here is that um, God gives, God-given. The gifts are a reflection of the nature and character of of our Lord. It's Him who gives. So you'll see this in the text, and, and we'll see a couple things concerning our God here from these few verses. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
Make note of that. And then there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly name Trinity here, but the Trinity is all over this text. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Now, at first glance, we could gloss over that and, and then quickly focus on the gifts. But the, again, the gifts are a reflection of the giver, of the nature and character of our God. So there's varieties. We'll get to that in the second point um, tonight. But those things come from one God, one God who exists in three persons. I had a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary who used to say in his church history class that most Christians are Pelagian in their practice and Arian in their confession. And what he meant by that was Pelagius uh, was ultimately condemned as a heretic uh, by church councils centuries ago, but Pelagius taught that you and I are inherently good. And so whatever evil we end up with in our lives is not because it's in us already, but because we chose it. So we essentially make ourselves evil by conscious decisions, but it's not what's in us. So Pelagius denied um, the original sin of Adam. There's an old children's catechism that says, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And Pelagius denied that and said we are born neutral at worst, but good at best. So then we are kind of making ourselves bad through the decisions that we choose. But that's not what's in us. And, and again, that's a whole other sermon, but um, we sin because we are sinners. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce taught uh, the example of that like a lion. And he said a lion is a carnivore in his nature. And you can starve him, you can put him in a cage, um, you can get him down to where he's hanging on by a, a breath, and you can put oats and hay and grass in front of him, and he won't touch it. He'll die because it's not in his nature. We, we sin out of our sin nature. In Adam's fall, we sin all. And so Pelagius was condemned, rightly, because of his views. And, and again, my professor said most Christians are Pelagius in their practice. They believe that um, sin is not something that's inside of them. It's, it's strictly speaking the bad things we do, not what's in. And then Arian in their confession. Now, Arius was a guy who taught that there was a time that the sun was not. That was a, a key motto of those who followed Arius in his teaching. He was very influential in the church. There was a time that the sun was not. So he taught that the sun was, yes, very old, but created by God, by the Father. And so he was rightly condemned. Well, here, Paul, in talking about the gifts, he connects it to the Trinity, which is, is beautiful. And, and here's how this applies to the gifts. I mean, we're talking about spiritual gifts, so what's the Trinity got to do with that? Well, there are varieties of gifts, the same Spirit, varieties of service, the same Lord, varieties of activities, the same God is that there is unity in diversity in the church and in the gifts because that's who our God is. Now, we could explore this deeply tonight 
and profoundly, but it's all over the world around us. Contrary to this, let me give you two examples. Islam. You know, we we say there are three great monotheistic religions, right? Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. But Christianity is extremely distinct and set apart from Islam and Judaism. So I want to use Islam as an example. Monotheists, one God, but not one God in Trinity. Not one God in plurality, one God in three persons, just one God. And, and that's very important. You sit down with a Muslim and they'll, they'll tell you, and the Quran speaks of Jesus as a prophet but not God. He, he is not, according to an honest confessing, confessing Muslim. Islam means submission, right? It, it means to submit. So a Muslim is one who has submitted to the will of Allah, who is not God, if we believe our Bibles. You deny the Son, you do not have the Father. They're, they're not the same. Different gods. And so they would submit then to the will of Allah. Well, in Muslim culture, women submit unquestionably to men. Now, most Muslims that you and I would interact with today are much more Western. Now, most, this is a generalization, not all. But they've been influenced by Western America much more so than their counterparts in the Middle East. Which is why you hear about uh, honor killings or women who show skin or show their face in defiance of their culture and then they're burnt or beaten or simply killed. Which is, according to Sharia law, it's, it's fine. Well, in the culture, the men are doing to the women the very thing that Allah does to them. It, it doesn't matter about the heart doesn't ultimately matter about love. What ultimately matters is submit. And, and so you're submitting to the one Allah, the men are, and then the women are submitting to them. The, the men are doing to the women the very thing that Allah does to them. It's, it's bow the knee, and I don't care if you want to or not. So there is extreme unity no diversity. None whatsoever. Now let's take secularism in our society. And secularism is our God, little g, right? Everybody's thought is authoritative. You know, this is, this is the kind of relativism that we experience in our culture. That's the dominant philosophy, spoken or not, of our society, Western America, is that it's all relative, right? Whatever you think is absolute and right for you. Whatever I think is absolute and right for me. So you have 318 million people who are all their own authorities. What is that? That is chaos. And, and the reason why that is absolutely chaotic and it's everywhere in our society is because that's what we believe is up here. So it's a, it's a trickle down. We believe chaos at the top so it's chaos at the bottom. Diversity, no unity. And, and we see this everywhere. I, I wish I had time for examples galore about this in our society. 
So whatever you believe at the top is the downstream effect of where we are. And, and the, the plurality within the Godhead, one God in three persons, is the only way a, a rational, reasonable, logical society can have both unity and diversity. And so the church is the manifestation. It is the unveiling of who our God is. It's the place where God shows himself to a world. Now you think about this as it relates to the gifts, as it relates to you and I. The church is not um, birds of a feather flock together. The church is the place where we expect radical diversity and unity. Uh, A.W. Tozer tells a great exam- uses a great illustration concerning this about uh, a room full of pianos. Imagine that you, you know, this place is full of pianos that are all out of tune. Well, the only way to tune the pianos truly is not against each other. There has to be an external tuning fork, but you get that one tuning fork and all the pianos become in tune with each other. The church is not... Um, arbitrarily, uh, irrationally seeking unity for unity's sake. Unity for unity's sake does not exist. But for the sake of Christ, who is called a group of people who are all very different and very unique, no matter the geography, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the educational levels or income levels, very unique and very different, but tuned to the same tuning fork tuned to the same pitch. Uh, unity and diversity. And this is because this is who our God is. This is who He is. And so, one more point on this before we go to the second. So, God-given. The gifts are God-given. Notice the emphasis from verse 4, 5, and 6. There are varieties of gifts. So, you have an emphasis on plurality. I'm going to get there in a second. But the same Spirit, one Spirit, varieties, plural, of service, the same Lord, one Lord, and varieties of activities, but the same God. God is not divided against Himself. And so the spiritual gifts, diversity in unity, are meant for the common good. The idea that we would ever be competitive or envious, or jealous one to another because others have gifts that we don't. Prideful, arrogant, egotistical because we have gifts that others don't. Shows it it would be a, a reflection that the God that we serve is divided amongst Himself. But the God who has called us, the God who we serve, He's for eternity one. One God. And so there are pluralities of gifts. One God, one Spirit, one Lord. And so understanding the gifts, it's tantamount that we understand the God who gives. Right? The gifts are reflections of the character and the nature of our God. Second point tonight, God-given gifts. Now, I want to hang our hat tonight on the last point, so I want want to just say three things here about the gifts, and these are expectations for us. So there are three sub-points under the second point. God, 
God-given gifts. So three expectations for gifts is that there are a plurality of gifts. Okay? So we're in the second point tonight, plurality of gifts. Varieties, varieties, varieties. Varieties, varieties, varieties. It's not singular, it's plural. A plurality of gifts. And, and I would simply ask, for reflection's sake, do you have all of the gifts? And, and you know, there's a hearty no to that. We don't individually have all of the gifts, plural. The gifts are exclusive. So look at verse 7. To each, now the idea there is singularity, to each, each person, each individual, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then Paul will go on to list, and this is just like our vice list last night from Galatians, Um, there are multiple gifts lists in the New Testament, Uh, Romans, Ephesians, here in 1 Corinthians. And uh, the only gift that shows up on the variety of lists is prophecy. Um, the gifts are not, you, you line up the list, they're not all the same. So again, just like the vice list and Paul saying in Galatians and things like these, it's the same thing with the gifts of the Spirit. Um, that's, that's one hang up with a lot of the gift surveys that we do in uh, church organizations is that uh, we kind of take those gift lists and we, we say this, these are the parameters. These are the things that Paul lists out. And so where do you fit? Well, you might not fit. You might have gifts that the Spirit gives that aren't on the list that we have in the New Testament. And the point is, is that they're not exhaustive. They're not comprehensive. So we're not going to get to verse 8 and following tonight of the variety of gifts. We're, we're going to end at 7. But to each is given the manifestation. So the Spirit gives exclusive. Um, it, it's His prerogative of what He gives. Now, again, there's application here. You don't have a gift. Well, you have to ask yourself, what do you believe about the giver? Do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that he's wise? Do you believe that he's all-knowing? Do you believe that he's sovereign? Do you believe that it is his right, out of his goodness, to give as he sees fit? So gifts are exclusive concerning the will of God. And then they're particular. They're particular to the individual. God has not formed or fashioned each one of us exactly the same. My wife and I have four children, 11, 9, 7, and 4. And it is unbelievable how different these kids are. I I think to myself, did they come out of our gene pool? Each one of them. They they are so radically different. Our, Our eldest is typical eldest. She loves to play with her siblings as long as they get in line and do everything she tells them to do. Uh, our, our second, we joke and say that, you know, we're counting down the days. Our eldest is 11, I think. I don't know if it's a state or national law. You can't leave your other kids with another kid unless that kid's 12. So we're just like counting down the days. We can't wait till we have a built-in babysitter. and We're not even going to pay her. And, but we know that when she turns 12, it's not going to be her watching the siblings. It's going to be our second daughter. She is the mother. She is the one that is so concerned and so watchful and so caring for everybody else around her. When we leave to come to trips like this, I always hug Adel and say, watch out for your siblings. 
she shakes her head because she does. She does. Our third one is crazy. I mean, nuts. She, she has had 13 casts and five broken bones in the last four years, and she's seven. I mean, she is wide open. And then the, the, the four-year-old, it still remains to be seen. And out of the same gene pool, it's unbelievable. And, and you think about us in this room. I mean, yes, there's going to be similarities between us. And, and we could spend the rest of the night trying to, to uncover those. But I would venture to say we're going to find a lot more differences. And, and that's the beauty of God's calling, is there's not a type, right? He, does, he doesn't call a type. In fact, God is in the business of flipping our lids when it comes to who He saves. John uh, John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, I came across a quote of his this past year that rocked my world. He said, I have no doubt that there's going to be three surprises when I get to heaven. One is that there are going to be people there that I never thought would be. He said, two, is that there are not going to be people there that I thought would be. And he said, and the most surprising of all is that I would be there. So the gifts given by God are particular to the individual. Last point tonight. God-given, God-given gifts, and God-given gifts for church-building good. Now again, much could be said about this. But when I say, and I I feel like for clarification's sake of saying, when I say church-building good, uh, I'm, I'm talking about God building up His people. And you can look at that one of two ways, and I think both are okay. But primarily, church building is, I'm, I'm talking about um, the edification of God's people. Building them up. That, that God, through His gifts, are building he is building you up. This is another way to say, I, I'm not first thinking the way that we think in our success culture about buildings, bottoms, and budgets. I'm not first thinking about that. I'm thinking about you and your soul. That God gives gifts to build you. See, we all have this tendency that we want God to do incredible and great things through us. Uh, we would love to see Powell Chapel, you know, at, at a point where it's standing room only. And you're having to take out the pews to pack people in here. And you're thinking about the next building program for all the people that are going to be coming. And, and all of that is well and good. But before God is interested in working through you, God is most interested in working in you. We want to do great things for the Lord. But do we want to be great people you know, in the Lord? Because that's, that's where God's heart is for you. You know, He used Pharaoh to accomplish His purposes. God, God can use anyone to accomplish His purposes. What God is most interested for His children is conforming them to the image of His Son. So, when I, I say particularly church building, I, I'm talking about you, the church. So the, the gifts then are for your good. So, so look at this then in verse 7. And, and 
It's there explicitly. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, it is not an apples-to-apples comparison to compare the church and you all a part of that with a marriage, but I think it's the closest analogy or the closest relationship we can get to. The proper apples-to-apples where it concerns marriage is Christ and the church, and that's Ephesians chapter 5. But now we're talking about the relationships within the church, but marriage is still a very fitting, uh, fitting analogy. There are some breakdowns, but in particular, your marriage, and I think about it when it concerns you and your spouse, if you are here tonight as a married person. God has given you marriage primarily for your sanctification. That's the, the primary reason that God has given you marriage. As a society, we have made marriage first and foremost about our happiness, which is why our divorce rate is unbelievably high. And the only reason that our divorce rate isn't still climbing is because our rate of people living with each other um, not ever marrying or before marriage is through the roof. That number is growing, and so our marriage rate has plateaued. Our divorce rate has, by and large, stayed the same because we have said that marriage is first and foremost about our happiness. And God has said that marriage is first and foremost about our holiness. And then our happiness is found in our holiness. In the same way, that's the church. God has not saved you in isolation. God has saved you into His body. That's all over the New Testament. He saved you into a people. You're not on your own. You weren't saved to be on your own. And so, yes, you can leave a church. You don't need a certificate of divorce to do that. Right? Tonight could be the very last night that you ever come back to Powell's Chapel, even if you're a member. You don't need to go before a judge. You don't need to file paperwork. You take off. And that happens. Uh, one author wrote a book recently, uh, a few years ago that I read, great title. He said, Stop Dating the Church. Because we, we do that. We're serial daters. And, and what ends up happening? Now, there are good reasons. There, there are some very good reasons to leave a church. In, in my position as a pastor of a local church, I hear a lot more bad ones than I do good ones. We need the gifts for our good. And by necessity, you don't have all of the gifts. And so God has saved a people, a body, individuals into his church for the common good and given them gifts for the common good. People around you tonight, people not here who are part of this church, others that God will bring to be a part of this church, they all have gifts that you all need. And those are, those are for you. Those are for your common good. And the gifts that you have are for others' common good. And so the gifts are for church-building good, and that includes you, your good. They're for the church's good. Others need you as much as you need them. And that's the nature of a relationship, right? 
is it's always two ways. You need the people around you, and they need you. We, we treat the church as a throwaway. Way too often. In the church, not even outside of the church, in the church. So the church is a smorgasbord. We pick and choose based on our felt needs. And what we end up doing is we stifle our own growth. But we don't even think about others primarily in that. Think about what, with the, the pick and choose model of church, think about what we're doing to others. It's easy to think about what we're not getting from other people, but what are they not getting from us when we cut ourselves off? Others need us. And granted, it is not easy. I have a friend that says being a member of a church and participating in Christian communities like hugging a porcupine. It's prickly. But God has designed that. And God's no fool, right? He, he understands exactly what he's doing. And, and it is the grit, it is the grind, it is the uneasiness that he is using, ordaining for our good through each other. Our divorce rate in our country, again, it kind of hangs around 50%. I, I had a friend um, who went through a divorce uh, several years ago, and uh, through the fallout of that and his brokenness, he started attending a divorce care class at another local church. And he shared with me a statistic that was shared with him through the divorce care material about divorce rates. And so, generally speaking, we're somewhere around 50%. So line everybody up, 10 people in a room, married, half of them are going to get a divorce. On second marriages, if, if those folks who get the divorce remarry, the divorce rate goes from 50% to around 65% of second marriages. So, second marriages, 65% divorce rate. Third marriages, so take those 65% then, and they remarry again, goes to about 74% third marriages. That's the divorce rate. Line up 10 people that are on their third marriage, seven or eight of them are going to get a divorce. And then if somebody gets married a fourth time, they're now in their fourth marriage, 83% divorce rate. When I heard that stat, I'm like, unbelievable. And the more I reflected on it, the more I thought about this. That you can't get away from you. You can't get away from you. And, and whenever people come to me as a pastor and they say, in fact, most people don't say we're leaving the church. They just leave. Mo most people don't have the guts to come to me and say we're going to go somewhere else. They just do. But when I find out or if the conversation ever happens and they're, man, I'm just not this or I'm just not getting this. And I, I think to myself, okay, you know, May God bless you, but you can't get away from you. Because wherever you go, there you are. And so your calling and God's gifting 
you in the church is needed both for you and for the church. Church building good. And the more we cut ourselves off from that, the more anemic, the more stunted, the more stifled, the more immature we are in our personal growth and we're cutting off gifts that God has given us for others from the church's growth. And and if there was nothing else that you walked away from this message with tonight, it would be, uh, I would want you to walk away with a renewed commitment, a renewed vow, a, a, I'm going to dig my feet in in the best possible way, in the most godly way, not in stubbornness or You know, they're going to have to bury me under this place before I ever leave, but I'm going to make it tough on everybody else around me. But it would be a renewed commitment to serve God by serving His people, by serving His church here at Powell's Chapel. And and so, church building good. Now, the very last thing, and this is what we, you know, this is our first thought when we talk about church building good is that through your all's love and service and commitment to each other, what will God do with that? God will build His church in the first way we typically think about it. Through the witness of a people who ought to give up, who ought to be unforgiving, who ought to feel slighted and put out, according to the world's definition of it, but your radical, grace-filled forgiveness, service, Love, commitment to, will be a resounding, brilliant light to a watching world. Turn to John 17. Aside from Jesus' prayer on the cross... Aside from him speaking and crying out to his father on the cross, the last words that we have in prayer of our Savior in John's gospel is this, the high priestly prayer. So so keep in mind what Jesus is facing, that he knows he's facing. With his eyes set on the cross, he headed toward Jerusalem. So that's what Jesus is facing. Jesus is facing his death and he knows it. And he's now praying to his father. And in verse 20 of John 17, he says this. I do not ask for these only. Now the these there is is particular to his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. If you're a believer here tonight, Jesus was praying for you 2,000 years ago in his high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word, that they, that's you, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, there's Trinitarian, that they may that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world 
may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. We talk a lot about evangelism, a lot about reaching our lost friends and family and relatives and co-workers. And, and typically, the one primary evangelistic tool that God has given His church, we ignore. And that is the way that we are unified. The way that we love each other the way that we care for each other, the way that we serve each other, the way that we forgive each other, the way that we, as Peter instructs us in 1 Peter, let love cover a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins he calls us to let love cover. Now church discipline is a whole other sermon. But before you ever get to church discipline, there should have been a long string of letting love cover a multitude of sins. We can't even let love cover a multitude of slights and little offenses. And Peter says, let love cover a multitude of sins. And the way that we do that with each other has a direct impact on a watching world that would say, why would you do that? Why would you forgive? Why would you serve? Why would you love? Why would you give money? Why would you give time? And there's a, there's a watching world that sees either our unity and our disunity as a reflection of what we believe about the God that we serve. There's a, a great illustration that I, I want to conclude with um, tonight. Powerful testimony of what I believe Paul is instructing us here from 1 Corinthians 12 about the, the use of the gifts in our lives. Uh, it, it comes from a, a gentleman named Charles Brown. He actually went by Charlie, but that seems a little weird to me uh, to call him Charlie Brown. Uh, Char Char no. Charles was a World War II uh, B-17 uh, bomber pilot. And on December 20th, 1943, he encountered heavy attack from 15 German planes, blew open the side of his B-17 blew out the back, killed one man, uh, severely wounded six others. There were three other crew members who were tending to the six who were wounded. Um, the tail gunner was killed. Uh, and then Charles himself was knocked unconscious, sending the plane into a nosedive. And so because the German fighter pilots saw the plane in a, in a steep nosedive. They backed off, figuring the, the plane for loss. Charles himself came to. He, he woke up uh, as the plane was in a nosedive and was barely able to pull the plane up. When he pulled the plane up, at the time, he was over top of a German airfield where another German fighter pilot, a man named Franz Stigler, was smoking a cigarette while his plane was being re-ammoed and refueled and so as they see this b-17 come in and then pull up and level off and start to climb the the crew members there scramble to get his plane ready and he jumps in it and he takes off to shoot this plane down now for charles and his crew members they're just flying along and and he does not think that they're going to make it he figures that they'll crash but he's going to try to hang on the other crew members who were well enough to jump out, had, had come together and made a conscious decision, we're going to take care of our fallen comrades, and we're not going to jump. And so 
one of the, the co-pilot comes to Charles and says, you've got to get us into England. We have to get back um, because nobody's going to jump out. And so it was, it was a, a death mission. They were, they were trying to get back before the plane crashed. Franz Stigler now is hot in pursuit. And, and he comes up behind the plane, and because the crew was so frantically working and, and Charles concentrating on getting to England, nobody noticed him. And he locks in, and he's getting ready to shoot him down when he notices something. He notices the tail gunner um, draped over the turret and not moving. And, and he flies closer in, and he sees that the guy's dead laying over top of the guns with, with actual blood running out of the back of the plane. So he pulls up beside the plane, and he can look in. Nobody even noticed him. He says he looks in at this massive hole inside this plane, and he can't believe it's still flying. And he sees men inside of the plane caring for their injured soldiers. And so he pulls on up and he gets at eye level with Charles Brown. And Charles looks over and he sees Franz Stigler. And he's in absolute shock to see this German fighter plane right beside him. And, and, he, and he starts to yell for somebody to get on one of the guns to shoot at him. And he, and he does. And at that moment, he sees Franz Stigler mouthing something to him. Inside of the plane, Stigler was yelling and motioning to him. What Stigler was saying was, land. Land the plane. But Charles was panicking and frantic. And what Stigler did in that moment was he made a decision to fly alongside him at the risk of his own life worried that another German citizen from below would see his tail number and write it down and report him, but also worried that if he left the side of this plane, that other Germans, either on the ground or in the air, would shoot him down. And so he provided an escort all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and then he peeled off. That was December 20th, 1943. In 1990, from Miami... After nearly 50 years of nightmares about that event, Charles woke up one morning and told his wife, I have to find him. I have to find that guy. And he took out ads in papers. Among uh, There were particular papers for retired fighter pilots. Uh, because he feared his own safety, long after the war, Franz Stigler had moved with his family to Vancouver, Canada, and that's where they were living and he wakes up one morning and sees an ad in the paper requesting contact from a, a pilot who had helped save the life of these other pilots on December 20th, 1943. And, and he tells his wife, it's him, it's him. And they immediately get on the phone with each other. That was 1990. Both men died in 2008. And Franz Stigler was a Christian. And Charles Brown also was a Christian. Stigler told Brown, he said, What I was mouthing to you was, May God bless you and keep you safe. And he said, I never thought you all would live. Um, both men remained in contact with each other for the next 18 years. They died within six months of each other, both from heart attacks. Stigler was 92. Charles Brown was 87. And on... In both of their obituaries, both men said about the other, he was a special brother. It's an amazing story.
And, and I believe that it's a reflection of each one of us in this room called to be a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Granted, there's going to be sin. Granted, there's going to be conflict. Granted, there's going to be much need of much grace for you to not give up on each other. But each of you, by God's design, needs the other. And, and I wonder if the same would be said of us concerning our participation and commitment to this body. Could it be said they were a special brother or a special sister? They love me to the end. By the grace of God, let's pray.